Well, this morning we are looking together at Mark chapter 4. If you've closed your Bibles, it would be very helpful if you could open them up again. And as we begin to look at this passage, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word. What an extraordinary treasure this is. More precious than gold, more precious than silver, sweeter than honey. But Lord, it is a closed book unless you open it to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would come to us now by your Spirit and you would open your word to us that we might behold wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at Mark chapter 4, but it's very helpful as we start just to go back and consider what we've seen so far if we were to have read through Mark's gospel to this point. Because what we've seen is that Jesus has come. The Son of God has come promising and proclaiming good news. What is the good news that is proclaimed? It is this, Mark 1 chapter 15. Sorry, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The moment for which all history has been waiting is here at last. In Jesus, God himself has come to his creation and he has come to open the way to his kingdom. And as we read through Mark's Gospel, so the question becomes, well, how can we enter this kingdom? And that is the question that Jesus answers for us in the parable of the sower. But the parable of the sower doesn't simply show us the way into God's kingdom. It also shows us how we continue to grow once we are in God's kingdom. In other words, it shows us how we can be saved and it shows us how to bear fruit as Jesus' disciples. So how is it that we enter God's kingdom? How is it that we are to grow as Jesus' disciples? It is through the word. The seed that the sower sows represents the word of God, God's message to us. The word is absolutely central to every aspect of the Christian life. First, it is the means by which we enter God's kingdom. So, for example, Jesus tells his disciples in John 15 and verse 3, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Or take 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, where Peter is writing to the church and he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We are saved through hearing and trusting in God's word. It is God's word that brings life. And that's why preaching is central to Jesus' ministry. Jesus did many extraordinary things, many remarkable healings, delivering people from demons. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, he says this, Let us go into the next towns, 
that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Throughout his ministry, it is preaching that is really front and centre. Well, what is the word that brings life? What is the word that opens the way by which we can enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, at its kernel, at its very heart, it is this, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's long-promised Messiah, God's long-promised King. He has come to open the way to the kingdom of God. But if we are to enter that kingdom, we must repent and believe the good news. In other words, we must surrender our lives to this Lord, make him our king. And as we read on in Mark's gospel, we see that this salvation is only made possible through Jesus' death. We discover as we read on that we have all sinned. We are all under God's judgment. We are all under God's wrath. But Jesus went to the cross to take God's wrath, to take that punishment, to pay the price for my sin and for yours so that we might enter his kingdom as we put trust in his revelation, in the words that he gives us. But secondly, the word is central to the Christian life in that it is central to our discipleship, our continued growth. Faith in God's word isn't simply the means by which we enter God's kingdom. It is the very means by which we grow as his disciples. So, for example, John 15 and verse 5, Jesus says to his disciples, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. If we want to bear fruit, we need to abide in Jesus. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, if you read that verse in the context, it means simply this, to listen to and to obey his teaching, to trust his word. We are born again through the word. We grow through the word. Well, the question must then be, well, where do we find this word? We find it in just one place. We find it in the Bible. And that's why this book is worth more than gold. It is worth more than silver. It is worth more than anything else that this life has to offer us. The Queen was told when she was crowned back in 1953, it is more precious than anything. And that's why we structure our services as we do. It's why we emphasise preaching. It's why we emphasise Bible study. It's why we encourage people to be reading through the Bible for themselves. Because it's as we trust in the truth that God reveals in his word that we are born again and we grow Well, what does that mean for us this morning? I think it must mean this, that there is nothing in our lives that is more important for any of us at any stage than to be listening to God's word. And that really is the point of this parable. Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But before we consider the parable in more detail, 
We need to ask this question as it is addressed in our passage. Why did Jesus teach using parables at all? That's the issue that we see addressed in verses 10 to 12 of Mark 4. And in verse 11, Jesus explains why he taught in parables. Jesus said to them, To you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. It's often assumed, isn't it, that Jesus taught in parables to simplify and to clarify his message. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says that he speaks in parables so that those outside may not hear and may not see. What are we to make of this? Well, the first thing we need to note is that Jesus is speaking about two groups of people. He speaks to, he addresses a group of people as you, who we see in verse 10 are described as those around him with the 12. And then he speaks of another group, those who are outside, verse 11. And if we go back into the chapter 3, into the last section of chapter 3, we find those two groups referred to again. Do you see, if you go back to verse 32 of chapter 3, there's a reference there to those who are around him. And similarly, there is a reference to those who are outside. Those who are around him are those who are willing to obey him. Those who are outside are those who reject him. At the end of chapter 3, we see it is his family who do not accept him for who he really is. But that story of the family is in fact wrapped around another story, another group of people who have rejected him. This time, it is the teachers of the law. They have thoroughly rejected him in a way that his family haven't. They say that he is possessed by a demon. Well, what is it that sets those who are around him apart from those who are outside? It is this, their response to him. It is their faith in him. Do they accept him or do they reject him? And the terrifying thing is this, that the continued rejection of Jesus, of who he claims to be, results in judgment. It results in the judgment of no longer being able to understand his message. Jesus speaks in parables so that those who are outside will no longer be able to understand his words. Now that interpretation is confirmed when you look at the context for the passage that Jesus quotes. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6. And if you read through the first five chapters of Isaiah, what you see is this continual rejection of God. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, we read that Israel had despised the word 
of the Holy One. What is God's response? After five chapters of rejection, he judges those who have rejected him. And the judgment is that they will hear God's word, but they will no longer be able to understand or to respond to it. And the same is true of those in the gospel who reject his son. And what was true then is true now. If we continue to resist Jesus and to reject him, he may judge us by closing our eyes and stopping our ears. But to those around him, to his disciples, Jesus has given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. What is the mystery that he's speaking of? It is simply this, that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Now these followers of Jesus are no better than anyone else. They're no more intelligent. They're no more innately spiritual than other people. They are exactly the same. What sets them apart is not their ability or their merit, but God's grace. In God's grace, they have been given faith to see who Jesus really is. And in God's grace, it is possible to move from being an outsider to being one of those who want to gather around him and listen to his word. In these verses, we see, don't we, both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus chooses to whom he will give the mystery of the kingdom. He speaks in parables to obscure his message from those who have rejected him. But at the same time, we see that the disciples come to Jesus seeking an explanation of the parables. We see that the teachers of the law have chosen to reject Jesus. And so while there is divine sovereignty, there is also human responsibility. In other words, we are each responsible for how we hear what Jesus is teaching us. We must be very careful how we listen to Jesus' words. That is the point of verses 10 to 12. And really, that's the point of the whole parable. It is a tremendous privilege to have God's word, to hear it preached, to have it in our hands. But it brings tremendous responsibility. We are all responsible for how we hear. The continual refusal to heed God's word can result in judgment. And that emphasis on hearing actually runs the whole way through this passage. Do you see in verse 3, this is how Jesus begins the parable. Listen. And again in verse 9, as he closes the parable, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then we have this linked parable coming after. And in verse 23, we have the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again in verse 24, take heed how you hear. The same point is being made over and over again. There is nothing more important in our lives than how we listen to, how we respond to 
God's word. We are to listen to him. We must be careful not to be casual about how we hear him. We are to take heed. Well, if we are to do that, what must we do? I think the parable warns us against three things that we must avoid. Firstly, don't let Satan snatch the seed. Verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And notice this, they have heard the word. That's not the issue. The issue is that Satan has snatched it away. Whenever we hear or read God's word, Satan is there ready to snatch it away. And I don't think therefore it's overdramatic to say that reading or listening to God's word is always going to be a spiritual battle. Well, how does that happen in practice? I think it happens in countless different ways. Let me give you some examples. It it may be that we are simply disinterested. The word just goes in one ear and then out the other. It may be that we come to church and we find ourselves bored and distracted. Perhaps we stayed up too late last night. We're simply unable to concentrate. It may be that we don't rate the preacher very highly and so we just tune out and switch off. That's not the issue. The issue is hearing God's word. It may be that we listen, but then as soon as the service is over, we shut our Bibles and we just move on to the next thing. Or it may be that we're behind in our Bible reading plans and we're trying to catch up and we just read through, not really thinking about what we're reading, just glossing over the words, not really taking it in. If you're not a Christian this morning, God's word is the means by which you will be born again. As you hear God's word, it is the seed that God is planting in your life. As you respond in faith to what God teaches you through his word, about who Jesus is, about why he came, So his promise is this, that you will be born again. You will enter his kingdom. But if you are not careful, Satan can snatch that seed away. I don't know if many people here know Brian Eno. Brian Eno is a fairly famous sort of British musician of the last 40, 50 years. If you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard his music, although you didn't realise it was his music at the time. But in 1973, before anybody had ever heard of him, he was waiting for a train on a platform. And the train pulled in, and because of where he was standing on the platform, he had a choice. Do I get in the left-hand carriage? Do I get in the right-hand carriage? Well, he got in the right-hand carriage, and there he met a man who went on to transform his career and transform his life. If he had got into that other carriage, we would never have heard of him. If you are not a Christian this morning, when you hear the word of God, you are in the same situation. You are confronted with a choice. 
But it's not simply a choice of your destiny in this life. It is a choice about your eternal destiny. It is of immeasurably greater consequence than that decision that Brian Eno had to face. Will I receive his word or will I let Satan simply snatch it away? And if you're a Christian this morning, well, God's word is the means by which we continue to grow throughout our lives. But how can we grow unless we are listening carefully to and trusting in his word? We need to be just as careful. We need to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. We need to pray for his help as we read and listen to his word. We need to reflect and pray on what we have heard. We need to take this seriously, lest Satan snatches away the seed that has been sown. So firstly, if we are to listen to Jesus' words, we must not let Satan snatch the seed away. But secondly, we must be serious-minded and not superficial. Verse 16, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Why does this group stumble? It's because their response to God's word has been shallow. It's been superficial. It's been simply an emotional response. And so when they experience persecution or tribulation for the word's sake, note that verse 17, it is for their faith that they're experiencing this tribulation and persecution. Well, when they experience that, it is just too much to bear. What sort of persecution might we experience? It might be what friends or family say when they hear that we're taking Christian faith seriously, when they hear that we're going along to church. It may be that at work there is some exaggeration of expenses and you want to take a stand in relation to it. And you know the pressure that will be brought to bear on you if you expose others. It may be that you fail to toe the line on sexual ethics. I can't imagine what it's like for teachers at the moment, the pressure that they must be constantly put under to toe the line. But it's not just teachers. I heard of a leading investment bank in the city of London where unannounced, they arrived one morning to find Stonewall there handing out T-shirts to wear for the day. Obviously pro-LGBT T-shirts. What do you do? Do you stand out like a sore thumb? Do you have the disapproval of your boss and your colleagues? Or do you simply go along and toe the line? We will be persecuted, and we will be persecuted increasingly in this country. We have had a very easy ride, really, for centuries. A church now is probably closer to the condition of the early church than it has been for a very, very long time. And the danger is if our response to, to God's word is simply superficial and emotional, then when the pressure comes, 
we're going to say, well, this isn't what I bargained for. When I signed up to follow Jesus, I wanted a life of comfort. If he won't give me that, then I'm not following him. And so rather than continuing to trust that Christ is able to take us through any storm, rather than trusting that Christ has something to offer me that is far greater than anything that this world can offer me, I simply throw the towel in and my faith withers and dies. (coughs) Jesus wants us to respond, not in a way that's superficial and shallow, but in a way that is deep, that is thoughtful, that is serious. He wants us to count the cost of following him. The third thing that we must do if we are to listen to Jesus as he wants us to listen to him is that we must be single-hearted. Verse 19. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The problem here is that the heart is divided. It wants Christ, but it wants other things. It is pulled in two different directions at once. They have gone wrong in their failure to see just how vast the treasure is that we have in Christ. It is as if they are holding eternal salvation, all the blessings that Christ has to give us, even Christ himself in one hand, and the promotion at work, the new car, the luxury holiday in the other. And they say, yeah, I'm going to go with this, because that is more important. We cannot even begin to compare those things. In Christ we have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. We are made sons of God. We have an internal inheritance. We have Christ himself. The treasure we have in Christ is so vastly superior to even the best that this world has to offer. I love that prayer of Paul's in the first chapter of Ephesians when he prays that God would open the eyes of the church, that they might know the inheritance that they have in Christ. I pray that God would do that for me, for all of us. In Matthew 13 and verse 44, Jesus gives this short parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy he goes and sells all that he has. And he buys that field. And just in case we didn't get the message the first time, he says another parable in the next verse, verse 35. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, all that he had, and bought it. Jim Elliot, the missionary, to the Orca Indians back in the 50s, got it right when he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We must be single-hearted. We must pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts that we might treasure him above every other thing. 
And then finally, there is the response that leads to life, to eternal life. Verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. These are the ones who hear the word and the word is mixed with faith when it's received. And the size of the harvest is just off the scale. I'm told that even today, with all the agricultural advances that we have, if you get a crop of 30-fold, you're doing well. Well, Jesus says this is a crop of 30 or 60 or 100-fold. His promise is this, if you give your life to me, I will produce the most extraordinary harvest in it, both now and in eternity. But you must keep listening to my word. We must stop Satan from snatching away the seed. We must be serious-minded and not superficial. We must be single-hearted in our resolve to follow him. And if we are, his promise is this, that we will have the joy of this eternal harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the promise of eternal life. Lord, we acknowledge again, who are we? That you should come to us and offer us eternal life. Lord, we have sinned against you, we've rebelled against you, we have hated you, and yet you have come to us in Jesus and you sow his precious word in our hearts. And Father, we pray that you would give us faith, that we might respond to that word. Lord, we pray that you might give us to know the secret of the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, that we might stop Satan from snatching away the seed that we might not be superficial but serious-minded in our response and that we might not have divided hearts. But Lord, we pray that you would unite our heart in loving and serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.